On this season, we're not going to be doing long intros anymore. Hopefully at this point, you know what this project is about and all of the disclaimers therein. Regardless, you can check out the trailer for season three if you want to hear more rationale for what this season is about. On today's episode, we have Dr. John Lundy joining us. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a theology of sexuality, the one flesh union, and so many things that relate to that. So I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. Dr. Lundy has a lot of insight and ideas about sexuality and has a PhD in New Testament, among so many other things. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear his thoughts on this subject. Let's dive on in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm sitting here with Dr. John Lundy, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about sexuality, maybe even a theology of sexuality, covenantal living, <laughs> and so many different things. Um, but before we get into that, Dr. Lundy, can maybe you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of who is John Lundy? Well, uh, I've been married 35 years, probably first and most important in this <laughs> Good, we're talking about marriage That's and right. sexuality. It's <laughs> a good one to bring up. And I have three adult sons uh, who live in the area. Um I was actually brought up in w- rural Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Big I was, Vikings fans, right? I am, and man, they're <laughs> hanging on. They're hanging on. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were ex-missionaries, that sort of thing. I, I went on uh, eventually to earn a PhD in New Testament studies at uh, Trinity in Chicagoland. Uh, and I've taught New Testament now full-time for uh, almost, uh, let's see, 20 24 years, almost 25 years now. Wow. Wow. Uh, I so love you started like right when I was born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not to age there you. There you go. <laughs> but to show you your breadth of work, that's a, uh, a good amount of yeah, work there. I'm, I'm older than I care to admit. <laughs> um, I love to hike. I yeah. hike in the Sierras in the summer. Mm-hmm. I like to uh, play a little tennis. I like reading, of course. I love spending time with my wife and my family and putzing around the house. Hmm. So you got your PhD in New Testament, right? Um, but we're talking about sexuality. Right. <laughs> so for someone listening, kind of what, what studies have you done on sexuality? What have you taught even on sexuality? Kind of what else have you been pondering about this before this podcast? Very nice. Well, I, I'm not an expert on this. This is clearly not my... <laughs> You've been married for 35 years, though. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's the thing. It's more of an experiential yeah. thing. Although because I am a New Testament guy, I've been pondering my experience with my wife within our marriage through the lens of biblical theology. So mm. it's it's more of an experiential knowledge. I, I have just now begun to read books uh, on this mm. area. So most, most of what I'm going to say today doesn't come from books. This comes from my own yeah. experience, uh, except for one area that we'll obviously get into. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do intend to write a book. I, I was invited into a class this mm-hmm. last year uh, to co-teach a class on marriage and relationships. And uh, I jumped at it because I've always wanted to write a book. So uh, much of what I'm seeing today will eventually fall, find its way mm-hmm. into that book. And that's a very popular class because it's a Christian university. <laughs> People uh, ring by spring. They got to get married right. before they leave here. So they're very fascinated with learning from the Bible guides, the Bible professors um, on sexuality. Well, in this particular class, though, it's it's uh, I'm the New Testament guy. And yeah. then there's a, a communications mm-hmm. guy. And then mm-hmm. there's a psychology mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. So so we kind of have three different angles, and oh, then we man. bring our spouses in, yeah. which is really good. Yeah, no, I I wanted to take that class when I was an undergrad, but yeah. <laughs> you know how the schedule is. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so maybe we can kind of jump right in. Um, I know we talked earlier about wanting to talk about sexuality as kind of a, just a as a whole. I don't know even theology of sexuality is helpful, um, but maybe even like a study and kind of just diving into that. So, what is sexuality according to the Bible? I know that's a big question. I know it's loaded. <laughs> I know you don't have time probably to work through the whole aspect of it. But what's like a summary of what is sexuality according to the Bible? 
Nice. Uh, in fact, uh, there is a book that I'm waiting to see. Uh, mm-hmm. I edit a series, and there's a guy in our uh, author pool who's actually going to be writing a book on sexuality oh. in the Bible. So I look forward to that when yeah. it comes out. Do you have any like idea of when it's coming out? Uh, he's just in the process of starting. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So it might be a little bit. <laughs> it's going to be a, a few years, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. As I see it, sexuality is really one of the fundamental ways in which humans express the image of God, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, so if you go back to Genesis 1, you have this uh, incredible uh, verse. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. This tells me that men and women together express the image of God. And, and in some interesting way, sexuality uh, mm-hmm. expresses that. Mm-hmm. So if some things uh, of that image are expressed better by women, uh, and if some of those aspects are generally expressed better by men, that implies that the image of God is better seen, more fully seen by the two genders together. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to be careful here because I also want to affirm that Jesus is the perfect image of God. So he mm-hmm. does that uh, singularly. But in general, uh, I think that there is uh, there's a fullness of the image um, uh, that that. Uh, sexuality actually gets at. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe, however, that sexuality is part of God's character himself. Hmm. Um, for that reason, I don't think we should ever think about God as masculine. Mm-hmm. I think I think the reason why the biblical writers use the masculine pronouns and the, and the notion of father is because in the ancient world, anytime you have a feminine goddess, notions of sexuality and mm. fertility all yeah. always come. Yeah. And so actually the choice of the masculine sort of uh, per picture of God is to avoid implying that God is sexual. Mm. Uh, and it protects then the importance of both men and win, women uh, reflecting yeah. the character of God. Yeah. So, so how does human sexuality reflect God's image? Uh, and, and I would say it, it, it points to God's creative power. Hmm. Uh, it it does so without mirroring how he did it. Hmm. Uh, the fact that it takes both sexes to procreate, uh, there's clearly a distinction between how how humans actually bring about life and how God yeah. brings about life. Yeah. Um, God simply speaks life into existence as opposed to Adam and Eve having sex in order to accomplish it. Hmm. Um and so I, I think sexuality points to that creative power in God, and, mm. and we in our sexuality then point to it without necessarily mirroring it. Hmm. That's helpful. I've never, I mean, I have thought about this, but you don't ponder deeply is the question, is God sexual? Yeah. I mean, which, but humanity has pondered that a lot. Right. I mean, even you mentioning the, the goddesses and even That's just right. a lot of the other ancient Mesopotamian creation myths are very sexual. But then we, as 21st century American Christians, I don't think we ever think like it's God sexual. What about sexuality points to God? Is it sexuality itself or is it actually pointing to something else? Nice. Um, and so I have some questions when we get to maybe a little bit more into Jesus <laughs> about what that Good. looks like. Um, but but maybe you can go. Well, I, I just want to say that that what confirms, I think, that, that sexuality is not part of God's character and being mm-hmm is implied very strongly by the fact that sexuality will eventually be eclipsed, hmm. that it will yeah. not be in the kingdom to come. Hmm. And that then tells me that sexuality, while pointing to God's creative power, 
It is only a temporary expression of it. Hmm. Where when we step into the kingdom, the fruit of human sexuality now will mm-hmm. especially reflect God's character perfectly, uh, ruling over the new creation in the world mm-hmm. to come. Hmm. Uh, that's fascinating, thinking of God creates by his word, mm-hmm. but then he gives humans almost a command to create with each other sexually. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you look at the new kingdoms, there is no marriage. or the new, In the new creation, right. there is no marriage. Yep. Um, Jesus says that. And so it's almost like if he gave us sexuality, in a sense, as a holdover. That, I don't like that word. Mm-hmm. Um, before the new creation until we can become a more fuller. But maybe then the question to ask off of that is, why did he create sex then? Why didn't he just give us the power to maybe create with our mouth? What What is it about sexuality or sex that God created that, that he wanted us to have, at least in this earthly <laughs> realm? Good, good. Well, anytime we start asking that kind of question, we have to fully admit our limited knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to claim that You're we understand You're telling me you haven't why. seen inside the mind of God? <laughs> Um, but it is worth asking the question. And so I think we can at least affirm a couple things. Number one, uh, certainly the reason he created sexuality is for the purpose of procreation. He mm-hmm. wanted humanity to fill the earth and be, mm-hmm. and be very And that's fruitful. evidence from the first the creation account. Yep. Yeah. But I also think that it's pretty obvious in Scripture that sex carries with it this notion of, of the deep, intimate connection that should be happening between humans. Hmm. And, and and sexuality points in that direction, um, but that now gets us into a, a bunch of other questions that we should then kind yeah. of explore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I want to explore those. Um, man, I, have a, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I know we're going some places here, but it makes me think of if we don't want to be too reductionistic, but if sexuality is just a way of intimacy, mm-hmm. um, if sex is specifically a way of intimacy, but intimacy is the goal of sex – then when we're in the new creation, we don't need the, you know, I don't want to call it fleshly, the the act of sex because we have perfect intimacy. Right. So it kind of becomes obsolete in a sense. And we don't need to create because it's it's there's this perfect order. We're with God. Um, but it, it gets into a, a lot of questions of, I mean, I want to even move to the New Testament in a little bit of, is that maybe, is there a connection of why, you know, Paul and these other authors talk about sexual sin as a different kind of sin hmm. than the rest of the sins? Hmm. Um it doesn't necessarily say it's worse, but it says it's a sin against the body. Mm-hmm. It's its own. I mean, it's not like sins with your mouth of lying is its own category of sin, but it's they focus on sexuality in a different way, mm-hmm. which I think is why the modern church, <laughs> in, in good ways and bad ways, have focused on it almost too much. Mm-hmm. But maybe let's let's we'll get to that a little later. What is sex according to the Bible? Um, that is a big question. Is it just Song of Solomon? <laughs> is that is that it? <laughs> but what what is it according to the Bible? Well, besides the obvious that we've already mm-hmm. stated with regard to uh, necessary for the procreative process, I think we should think about sex as imaging the most intimate, trusting relationship that humans can enjoy. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who actually has sex experiences that intimacy. Yeah. yeah. If sexuality is experienced as it ought to be then I do think it's pointing very much. And that then gets us into the whole discussion of the one flesh union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in Genesis 2, obviously, no suitable mate was found for Adam among the animals. Mm-hmm. That clearly affirms that it was impossible for Adam to fulfill the creation mandate mm-hmm. uh, with any other animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, no other animal then can rule over all the other animals since humanity was supposed to rule over mm-hmm. all the animals. And that is a, a god 
command, almost as a God statement of saying it's not good for man to be alone. Exactly. We don't see the account of Adam going to God and be like, hey, <laughs> exactly. I'm lonely. It's more of God acknowledging and saying it's not good for you to be alone. None of these animals are suitable helpers. Yes. And and, and we should always think about it's not good in the sense of you're not going to be able to fulfill this mandate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then God, as you know, he does a bit of uh, surgery on Adam and fashions <laughs> Eve pretty interesting. out of the rib. But think about that. It now links the two uh, genetically and mm-hmm. organically. Mm-hmm. And then Adam makes this beautiful statement. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And, and that then sets up this next huge statement. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So what is the one flesh union? Mm-hmm. What is it all about? Well, on the purely physical side, obviously, and this is what many people even imply, that one flesh is simply talking about sex. Because when you have sex, you are physically united with mm-hmm. with, with mm-hmm. the other person. Um, but it is much more than simply this. Uh, if, if that's all it was, then there really ought to be no boundaries on mm-hmm. sex. We should mm-hmm. be like the rest of the animal world, or at least mm-hmm. much of the animal world, which... Um, has has sexual intercourse with as many different partners mm-hmm. as possible mm-hmm. for the purpose of actually procreation. Yeah, the fact that it's 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 not just just sort of limitless sexuality points mm-hmm. to uh, something very much more intimate. Well, it's almost as if the way animals have sex, it's they're almost better at procreating than us, yeah. just from a numbers perspective. Exactly. So it can't be that our sex and how God sets it up is just for procreation, although that's the one of the most important components of it. There's there's something different about how we're reviewing sexuality and sex. Um, in the one flesh union, I mean, I've been to so many weddings and <laughs> been a groomsman in weddings, even with one of your sons was a groom, groomsman in a wedding. And Christians love to be like, tonight you become one flesh. Or like, tonight exactly. is a one flesh union. But no one knows what that actually means. Yeah. Like, is it one flesh in the sense of we talked about this physical interlocking in a sense? So it looks like it's one flesh. What even is it? And so that's why I'm excited for you to talk about it because no one knows what one flesh union means, uh, at least in my generation. Maybe we're <laughs> we're unread. Millennials are dumb and we're lazy. Um, but what what is the one flesh union? Well, I'm not sure I know it either, but I'll give it my <laughs> best shot. Well, good. I'm glad it's not just millennials. Though. Good, good. Well, I, I think it's interesting that Scripture, in its kind of original uh, language, uh, uses the word no mm-hmm. when it comes to sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. And Adam knew Eve, if you actually look at the old King James. Uh, and I remember as a kid being puzzled by that. And we always made jokes about mm-hmm. you know, knowing. You yeah. Know, did you know her? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think there's an implicit clue here that suggests that, that sexuality is designed to be the most intimate honest, mm-hmm. vulnerable, and trusting interaction that two people can mm-hmm. actually enjoy together. Again, that doesn't mean that they actually have that. Mm-hmm. But when sexual intercourse is engaged in this way, it actually uh, allows the two partners to know each other mm-hmm. so profoundly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would suggest that the best uh, understanding of what it, what it means to know each other is that it should be in the arena where these things are true. It should be in a context where there's profound mutual commitment to mm-hmm. endure with each other. Mm-hmm. It involves profound mutual trust in each other. Mm-hmm. And it involves profound mutual trustworthiness. Hmm. So if you have those kinds of things uh, in your relationship, now you have an unbelievably safe environment 
mm-hmm. to actually interact with each other. When you think about how easily we, we wound each other relationally, uh, it, it's, it's, it just happens naturally between fallen human beings. We just mm-hmm. wound each other. But if the relationship can become so careful, so gracious, so loving as to be protective of the other, mm-hmm. now you are opening the, the door for intimacy like never before. And I think, I think sexual, sexuality should be pointing to that kind of interpersonal relationship that goes way beyond mm-hmm. physical. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, if that's the case, then entering into sexuality outside of this kind of relationship is entirely inappropriate. In yeah. fact, it exposes us mm-hmm. to profound damage yeah. and also to the hindrance of thriving. Mm-hmm. And maybe explain, when you say inappropriate, because when we hear that, especially people who grew up in the church, inappropriate has become almost this like, you gross, icky, don't talk about it kind of thing, where it's... That's your. That's inappropriate to talk in that way. It's inappropriate. But I think how you're using inappropriate, it, it, actually the word itself, inappropriate, um, it's a different kind of usage. So when you say sex outside of this kind of permanent, faithful, trusting union, it's inappropriate. What do you mean by inappropriate? I mean outside of the design yeah. of the designer. Mm-hmm. And I mean that the the result of this is that it's going to cause damage. It's going mm-hmm. to cause harm. So ultimately, all of this is for the thriving of humanity, mm-hmm. even though it's so countercultural today. Mm-hmm. Now, we can use the word sinful, mm-hmm. but I, I don't want those connotations here, even though mm-hmm. anything that's outside of the design of God is sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would rather focus on human thriving here. And so, mm-hmm. so when God places these kinds of boundaries around sexuality, it is for our good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's super helpful because when we think of sex, especially we'll talk about purity culture and then yeah. the hookup culture as well. But when we think of sex, at least in my generation, it's sinful, icky. Yeah. Older people are just telling us, don't do it. It's bad. Right. Um, and they're focusing so much on the negatives of sex. They're not right. teaching us the ideal. They're not right. teaching us the goodness. Right. And so we have all this thing. It's like we see like a donut and it looks good. But all the people are telling us that it's filled with slime. It's gross. If you eat it too quickly, you'll vomit. If you eat it too late, you'll have diarrhea. <laughs> like there's there's all these just negatives rather than saying like, oh, look at how good this is. Don't you want to keep this for later because of how good it is? Don't you want to wait to have this because of how good this donut is? Rather than like all of the consequences and negatives, which is why I appreciate you because most people will just focus on the pitfalls of having sex, which we can talk about, but we don't get this beautiful picture. And so it makes us, when we find out one day when you have sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend, it's like, oh, I'm not vomiting and diarrhea and having full of slime at the same time right now. They must be lying now. It must not either be as good as they're talking about or it must, their version of it isn't worth it. This idea of permanence. Because I can have just as good enough sex as what Mm -hmm. they're talking about. I'm not exploding. So that's why I think it's helpful because when we don't see the end goal of things, well, we don't know the why, of behavior modification, it just will lead to acting out, um, which is, I mean, I've talked about this other podcast where Christians basically lose their virginity a year later than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so if, if the older generation's goal is to get us to not lose our virginity because we're going to die, that's why people are having sex because they realize Johnny over there, good Christian guy, generally he had sex before he was married and he's fine. (laughs) So why should we wait then? If it was all about these consequences that we're not experiencing, then why should we wait? Um, but we'll get, we'll get into that. So maybe, before we get into some of the cultural things of now, does the Bible give any guidelines for how sex and sexuality should play out 
is it again is it anything goes as long as it's marriage <laughs> or what what kind of is the, the guidelines for sexual intimacy according to christians or even i mean maybe we haven't finished the one flesh union discussion that's what i want yeah. um and so what else about this one flesh union i kind of went on a tangent there no, <laughs> but fine. um what is it about the one flesh union again what is it for one but why does that matter why is that distinctively different than what we see around us. Um, why is God commanding one flesh union compared to just a multi-flesh thing? Why does that matter? Yeah, excellent. Well, again, we're 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 moving into areas of mystery here, but my hunch is that the kind of love that ought to exist in the in the relationship where sexuality should be uh, practiced, it points to and begins to anticipate the love that goes on between the members of Godhead. Hmm. And so when you think about that kind of love, we're talking about profound intimacy, profound trustworthiness, profound commitment to each other. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, my wife even asked me about this as we were talking about this last couple of days. Uh, she says, so, so what is the purpose of orgasm? Mm. Uh, yeah. And, and I think two, number one, uh, I think because it's pleasurable, it motivates humans to procreate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think secondly, it points to the the profound pleasure Mm -hmm. that comes when two people, two persons come together in this kind of relationship Mm -hmm. where there is just intimate trust, uh, safety, vulnerability, and there's no fear. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that's what it's it's all pointing to. It's almost, it's like pleasure. It's almost like satisfaction. Like Mm -hmm. it's this fulfillment even Mm -hmm. when orgasm occurs. It's not just this physical pleasure, although that's a big, that's what it is. But I think that's triggering a fulfilling kind of thing. It's like when you have an excellent meal. It's not just that your body's saying food was good, but there's this, this, this aroma you have in you now of just like, wow, (laughs) that was fulfilling. That was good. That's right. And it only can get better at, yeah. if this is mm-hmm. practiced and right. And it makes you, again, it's the reward system. You want to have it again <laughs> yes, exactly. because it was so fulfilling. If the relationship progresses. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to this one flesh thing. Um, when we talk about the, uh, the nature of the one flesh union, I would want to say that the one flesh union is really the whole of the person. So when you think about what makes up the human person, you have to think obviously about the intellectual life. The emotional life, um, the physical life, uh, recreational life, the spiritual life, all of these dimensions, I believe, make up the one flesh union. So mm-hmm. it goes way beyond the physical uh, side of things. As a result, I would suggest that you think about sexuality as the epitome of the relationship. Hmm. Epitome is is the uh, great example, the summary statement of something, right? Mm-hmm. So if if the relationship between uh, a husband and wife becomes increasingly united in all of those ways, um, then when you go into the bedroom, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's in line with everything else that's happening in all of these other dimensions of your of your relationship. I learned early on in my relationship with my wife, Pam, uh, that if we weren't spending quality time together and we weren't communicating with each other, Mm-hmm. Um, even though as a young husband, that didn't matter. I still wanted to have sex, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't pleasing for my wife. And, mm-hmm. it, and, and because of that, it wasn't pleasing it was for me. Yeah. So yeah. I eventually realized, unless we're connecting in all of these other areas, 
it was pointless to even mm -hmm. want to go into the bedroom. Mm -hmm. But when those things are happening, now sexuality becomes unbelievably fulfilling. Because now the bedroom is actually reflecting and demonstrating what's happening everywhere else. Hmm. And, and that's why when you have sex, uh, it, it has to be caring. It has to be re receiving the sexuality of the other person as a gift. Mm -hmm. If it's ever taken, it, it actually becomes a form of rape, mm -hmm. uh, even mm -hmm. in marriage. Mm -hmm. And so if, on the other hand, it's, it's, it's a relationship where you are learning to give, and especially for the men, learning mm -hmm. how to give in the bedroom, it, it means that probably he's learning how to give everywhere else in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, there is reciprocity, there's reflection of, of this larger one flesh union everywhere else that now the physical act of, of, of sex expresses. Yeah, so case study for you. Let's say I'm 19 years old, um, been dating a girl for a year. We're kind of connected, or even actually, let's not do dating. I met a girl. It's our first date. Um, things transpire and turn guess. We end up having sex. So, what does that mean for mm -hmm. the one sex union? I know Paul talks about having sex with prostitutes, um, mm -hmm. and why would you want to become one flesh? Anyone who has sex with a prostitute becomes one flesh with them. Um, but I mean, how you describe one flesh? It's more than just the sexual mm -hmm. activity. So, if I'm only engaging, let's say, sexually in that. What is that doing? And is that even a one flesh union? What kind of how does that play out? Yeah, Paul does affirm that you are one flesh with whoever mm -hmm. you have sex with. So there is a bond that does occur. And I, I actually have a friend back in Illinois who does um, a lot of counseling with people in the area of sexuality and 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 men who've had multiple sexual partners in and part of their healing is actually to go to go back to the partners and and apologize for the wounding mm -hmm. that, that he caused and and then to declare it's breaking so mm -hmm. there is a sense in which there is a bond that just naturally occurs and i know that that researchers have said that when you have sex there's hormones that are released that actually end up facilitating the bonding actual you know between these two people mm -hmm. so i do think there is something physiological and actually almost magical that occurs between people mm -hmm. so i don't want to d diminish that but at the same time mm -hmm. if it's not in this relationship that is enduringly committed Mm -hmm. What you're saying is that it's not that important. Yeah. So even though it might be pleasing, it's not an it's not it's not the kind of thing that it really is designed to be. Yeah. And for those listening who may be hearing, they're scared of the bond language because of bad ways it's been used against them. Of like, oh yeah. Yeah. But what Dr. Lundy's trying to say, it's the same way of like, so for instance, I had a girlfriend in high school, um, never was physical. Um, but I coming to college, I still had a strong emotional bond to her. And so I almost had to, in a sense, reconcile in some ways, exactly what you're talking about yeah, yeah. and break it to actually be able to move on and not yes. feel still attached in some way. So he's not saying that because you had sex, you're now bonded forever and it can't be changed. And it's worse than everything else, but just like an emotional bond, just like some other types of bonds, mm -hmm. it's something that has to be worked through. That's right. um, psychologically, that's true. This isn't just the Christian <laughs> perspective. Right. Uh, most psychologists would agree there's a bond that takes place during sex. There's a bond that takes place during deep emotional conversations. Right. Um, sex just has a little bit more horm hormones involved. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's a little bit more strong psychosocially. Yeah. Um, but again, he's not saying this is this bond that you're now damaged and it's forever and it's permanent and you're done. 
it's just like another type of baggage you have. Um, right. Something that needs to be worked through, something that needs to be processed through, and something that maybe needs to be broken off. Right. So just so you're hearing that, because right. I know people listening because of their baggage. Because yeah. I use bond language as well. But when people hear bond, they're thinking of the youth pastor screaming at them, saying, if you have sex with someone, you're you're done. Forever you're attached to them, nice. and you'll never be able to get your full self back. Nice, nice. Um, but that's that's obviously not what the scripture says. It's not what psychology right. says. Right. Um, it's a It's a bad teaching of one flesh right um, excellent well if it's for these reasons then that sex can never be the center of the relationship mm-hmm. because it's not designed to be the center it's designed to be the reflection of it it's mm-hmm. designed to be the expression of it mm-hmm. and this is why ultimately sex outside of the relationship that actually gives it meaning it will be diminished in meaning and can even become empty and people move on mm-hmm. uh, so again this gets us back to the notion of thriving if we, mm-hmm. if, if, if we understand what sex is all about, it, it then uh, enables the relationship to thrive as opposed to get focused on, on mm-hmm. the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, this kind of love that I'm talking about with regard to the one flesh union is, is the kind of love that, that has to take time. When, when you think about um, newlyweds, when they're at the altar and they're living their first months together, it, it, it's an incredibly exciting kind of love. It's expressive. Mm-hmm. It's 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 full of, of life, all that sort of stuff. But there's also a tinge of fear in it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you don't fully know what this person is eventually going to do. Mm-hmm. Is this is is she going to be unfaithful to me? Is he going to hurt me? Is and mm-hmm. so although there's this great excitement, there's also this lack of of complete trust in the other person because you simply don't know and Mm -hmm. it's a tremendous risk anytime Mm -hmm. you do actually get married Mm -hmm. but if you live with each other carefully obviously not perfectly but carefully in the sense that there's ongoing repentance there's ongoing apology there's all ongoing forgiveness you live with each other from a servant heartedness so that you know you the man actually does the laundry and dishes on a regular basis and <laughs> and he actually does help yeah. with the baby and yeah. and she actually does do things that help mm-hmm. him if you actually do that in a mutual kind of way and you live carefully with each other through the years of trying to establish a career trying to mm-hmm. establish yourself financially trying to rear children all of the stuff that you have to do mm-hmm. if 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 by the time you get through all of that you may not realize it but you've, you've really started to trust each other at yeah. deeper and deeper levels. So in my own life now, I've been married 35 years. My mm-hmm. sons now are all out of the house. So finally mm-hmm. now we are professional or uh, officially yeah. empty nesters, yeah. right? Well, it's at this point where a lot of marriages actually suffer because mm-hmm. they've been distracted mm-hmm. uh, to just take care of the kids. And once the kids are gone, they don't know each other. Well, the and- biggest two times of divorce, according to psychologists and data, is after the first child because it's such a change. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And then once the last child leaves. Yeah. Because it's you're for some people, their whole identity became wrapped up in their kids. They became so distracted in their kids. So now it's like. We don't have anything in common. That's right. They're gone. That's right. Um, so you're, you're right in that. This is this is a pivotal time. It is. In the marriage. And what we have found is that once we were, in a sense, liberated from all of the concerns that parents have, not that we are no longer parents, but that we are liberated from the day-to-day concerns of our mm-hmm. boys, we found each other again. Yeah. And now that relationship of trust that's just been slowly building throughout the decades of our relationship now have brought us to a place where I know she's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. She knows I'm not going anywhere because mm-hmm. we've seen each other at our lowest, at our most stressed, whatever. Well, what does that do then? What, what it does is it allows you now to begin to let the walls down 
more than you ever did before. Mm -hmm. And you learn how to abandon yourself to love in a way that I think the one flesh union was intended to be. Mm -hmm. So I I think you are declared one flesh at the altar, Mm -hmm. but you become one flesh through life. Mm-hmm. And 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 people who chuck the relationship too early mm-hmm. because that soulmate hasn't occurred, mm-hmm. it, it's because they haven't given it enough time mm-hmm. living carefully with each other for that trust to develop. And once that's there, now the, the love relationship can, can take mm-hmm. off. And that sounds a lot like what we want to talk about with what it means to live covenantally. Because mm-hmm. at the altar, you get given the covenant status but then it's about living covenantally. So maybe we can actually, let's stop right here um, for episode one, and then we'll we'll pick up um, for episode two. We hope that Dr. Lundy's word today encouraged you in your view of sexuality, reframed how you view the one flesh union, and ultimately gave you hope for your sexuality. Also, if you ever have any questions or feedback or topics that you want us to discuss and you want to get a hold of us, we have an email listed in the podcast notes that you can email um, and send us your thoughts. So please go on and do that, um, and we'll hopefully incorporate that into some of the podcasts in the future. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you have heard today or enjoyed what this podcast is doing and what is it about, it would help us out greatly if you could leave us a review and if you could subscribe to the podcast. This helps us reach other people, and this helps us fulfill what this podcast is ultimately trying to do, which is bring hope to those who are trapped, those who are struggling, and those who are wondering what to do with sexuality. And above all, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.